You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode in our series on learning Latin. This is brought to you by the Fleming Foundation. And joining me today, as often, is a young Latin teacher and also mother of children to whom she's been teaching Latin, Eleanor Fleming Lacey. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Always nice to get together. Now, we're doing uh, what is technically the second half of our seventh podcast. That is, this was uh, essentially, we're now dividing them in half. The uh, We were taking up in the first half, we took up nouns of the fifth declension, and we also read the famous passage from uh, St. Paul from 1 Corinthians, uh, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, etc. And uh, we went over that, and we'll have occasion to allude to that a little bit later. Now it's time to take up uh, verbs. So far, uh, we have been through the uh, Latin present tenses of the first three and a half conjugations, that is the conjugations of the first conjugation, which goes porto portare, the second conjugation debio debere, the third conjugation duco ducere, but then the subset of so-called I-stev nouns, capio, capere. Now we're on to the fourth conjugation, which is nouns, I'm sorry, verbs, which uh, have a stem in long I. That is, they have an infinitive in ire. This is very similar to the third conjugation in the way, for example, it will form the future, and it's very similar to third conjugation I stems. In most cases, it's hard to tell the difference, uh, but the uh, this conjugation tends to be more regular. Why don't you uh, recite for us, like a good little schoolgirl, the present <laughs> tense of audio audire? All right. Audio audis audit, mm-hmm. audimus audite audiunt. Okay. Now, now those, the I is, is long wherever it can be long. Uh, so it's audio audis audit, audimus audite oh, Audiot. Right. Now, why is the vowel why is the vowel, the I short in the first person singular, the third person singular, and the third person plural? Uh, um, because long vowels generally shorten before a T, an N T, an O and an A. Exactly. Exactly. It could stand before uh, any other consonant, and it could like an S, and it could stand before, uh, before, for example, uh, an E. Now there are two classes of verbs in the fourth conjugation, and I wasn't. I've never really thought about this much, but I was looking at a linguistic, a linguist's uh, 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 treatment of Latin grammar. Uh, that is Hale and Buck, uh, and they point out that most of the 
Fourth conjugation verbs are simple verbs. That is, they're based, I'm sorry, they are not simple verbs. They are called denominative verbs. De meaning from, nomen meaning name or noun. So they're verbs based on a, uh, a noun or adjective form. So as a result of a, a verb like finio, finire, finiwi, finito. Finio uh, is, comes from finis, end. So finio means to bring to an end or come to an end, cause to come to an end. And so uh, audio, uh, audire, etc. Most of these verbs, uh, and they're all very regular, are formed from nouns. Less regular are verbs that have the that are basically uh, how to put it. They they're, they're they're simple root verbs, and they they tend to have this I in the stem only in the present system. So this gives us a verb like wenio, to come. The, the, it's, a, it's not derived from anything, it's just wenio. Of course, our word went is, a, is cognate, not a derivative, but a cognate. Wenio, uh, so wenio, wenire, weni. So in Julius Caesar's famous, uh, you know, uh, weni, weedy, weeki, or veni, veni, vidi, vici, to use uh, ecclesiastical Latin. Um, and so these, these smaller class of verbs uh, tend to lengthen the, the, the vowel uh, of the, of the, within the, within the uh, root of the word, and then just add the perfect ending. So it's a, it's not a, it's not a problem. <clears throat> and in fact, uh, very few, very few Latin students are ever going to care. But it is interesting. It's not an irregularity. It's really two two classes of verbs with huh. the same conjugation. I see that. That is interesting. Yeah. Now let's go. You know, this is uh, not to sound like this is a Star Wars episode, but uh, we have a. You know, we have these rules, the first rules of, this, uh, of, uh, of our galaxy. Uh, the, first, the first rule of the Latin Wait. verbal system. What are the rules of the Star Wars galaxy? <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of Star Trek, where they have the ultimate command or mandate. Oh, yes. Maybe, which, oh, right, to which, go... Some anyway, sorry, yeah, go, not uh, our, distracting. As they as they used to say, what on the uh, on that BBC series, the uh, what is it, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yes, it was a, to boldly split infinitives that have never been split <laughs> never before. Been split before. Yeah. But no, I think the I think the mandate was that the, one of the rule, one of the prime directives was that they were not allowed to interfere in the cultures of the planets that they visited. Uh, in other words, this is very anti-colonial, and in fact, a lot of a lot of uh, those episodes are are very uh, they're very they're very sort of left-wing politically. So imagine if Columbus coming to the New World, he said, "No, no, we're not going to take your gold. We're not going to take slaves. We're not going to teach you Christianity because we have a prime directive, and that is we can't interfere in any way in local culture." Of course, well, maybe people would still like Columbus now. Maybe we'd still get to celebrate Columbus Day yes. if he had done that. And, uh, and, and they'd still be practicing human sacrifice all over the Caribbean and in South well, America. Well, 
Yes. So there are, you know, there. I guess there are pluses and minuses to everything. So uh, this is this is really you can't repeat these rules often enough. Uh, we're talking now about the present system. The present system, in the Latin verb, consists of three tenses, both in the active and passive forms, uh, in and in the indicative and uh, subjunctive modes. The imperative mode, there's really a one or two tenses within the present system, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, for, for practical purposes, we'll just say there's a present imperative. So, present, imperfect, and future. All are based on a present stem. <clears throat> and what is the rule? How do we get the present stem? From the infinitive. From the infinitive. So, the infinitive of amo is... Amare. The infinitive of moneo is... Monere. The infinitive of duco is... Ducere. Ducere. And the infinitive of audio is... Audire. Audire. So, we go to the present... We go to the present active infinitive, and then what do we do? We knock off the RE. Exactly. So that gives us ama, mone, duque, and audi. Now, when we get to the um, some of the other tenses in the uh, verbs like facio, the third conjugation I stem, and verbs uh, of the fourth conjugation, for purposes of euphony in the classical period, you had uh, they, they added e. So it becomes, for example, uh, copy a bomb, Audi a bomb. But we'll, uh, we'll, 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 it's, it's not a problem, but be aware that you do see at other periods of Latin, like in some imperial Latin, you'll see people write Audi bomb. So this is clearly a, a question of dialect. One of the interesting things to study, and I'm, I'm by no means an, uh, an expert, far from it, on this, in the development of Latin, you can, because we have early Latin inscriptions and snippets of poetry, and, you know, Latin would have, <clears throat> wasn't like some kind of pure language invented in, uh, you know, up in, in the kingdom of heaven. Latin evolved as interlocking dialects among the Latin, among, among the different people in, in Latin towns, not just in Rome. And then on the outlying areas, they had influences from other related languages that were semi-intelligible, and they were borrowing words, and borrowing grammatical forms, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And what you can see developing in Latin is an imposed consensus, d done, imposed by the best writers. This is the way it's done, and this is the only way it's going to be done. And this results in making Latin into a very disciplined and coherent language for many hundreds of years. And you, it's about the time of the Punic Wars that you could see things straightening out. And um, someday, maybe when I get a lot older uh, than I even am now, uh, it's, a, it's a subject worth looking at how how Latin straightens out. Because, for example, the Greeks, the Greek is all sorts of dialects, and eventually it narrows down to the Attic version of Ionic, and that becomes a standard dialect throughout the Greek world. And, uh, and English, you know, it, borrowing from different dialects, English becomes basically the dialect spoken by the upper classes in London. And 
today in my lifetime, I've watched as the literate English English is becoming unintelligible to Californians uh, and uh, and their their English. The the stuff you hear on national public radio, the kind of valley speak that all of them seem to have from from uh, influenced by California teen culture. I mean, they all sound like they're from uh, the movie Dumb and Dumber, and um, that the, the 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 because the consensus is breaking down uh, in this great age of universalism, and we're all one world. Actually, the it, parts of the English-speaking world are are drifting apart. Okay, now to form the present tense, we of course go to the present stem, and with a little bit of fiddling. Because you know, Latin, because Latin is also a very mellifluous language, and you just don't re- repeat a lot of vowels. So, for example, you wouldn't say "facio facius." You know that that's the kind of thing you try to avoid. But so you you add what are called the primary endings: "ost," "mustis," "unt." But right. uh, to form the imperfect tense, which is a tense of continuous action in the past. To form or repeated action, to form the imperfect, what do we do? We go first to what? The present. Yeah, to the infinitive, derive the present stem, and then what do we do? Then you add your imperfect endings. Right. Now these are the second, these are secondary endings. That is, by in, when we speak of primary and secondary in Latin, we mean whether we're thinking about things more or less in terms of the present and future, or are we thinking about them primarily uh, as in the past or as not having happened. So the secondary endings are, are a characteristic of something other than statements of fact about current reality. They're very similar to the uh, primary endings, but it, they, but the big the big kicker is that the first ending is M, not O, and uh, so it's M S T, mus tis unt. So the the big the big difference the big sign is the M, and by the way that M shows up in a whole series of verbs in Greek as as M I, and so we call the me verbs like tithemi and uh, histemi. So this is uh, this is not something that uh, unusual, uh, and in fact, in uh, in Slavic languages, right, the way you say please in Serbian molim means I beg you. So the the that m ending, is first person singular, it's the same ending as here, as if you would in uh, in uh, Latin. So let's uh, let's try to to form and pronounce. The imperfect tense of amo amare. All right. Oh, you want me to do yes, it? Yes, I okay. want you to do it. I can't do everything. <laughs> so we have we have ama, and then we have bomb. So yeah. ama bomb. Uh uh-uh. ama. Uh uh-uh. Why not? Oh oh right. Ama bomb. Yes. Remember, um, remember our Latin accent rule. If the penult, which is the next to the last syllable, when the penult is long, it is accented. If it is short, then the accent falls on one syllable back to the anti-penult. So, amabam 
Right. It's hard, though, once you get going. Amabam, amabas, amabas. Amabamos, amabates, amabant. Right. It's hard because uh, when we're memorizing paradigms, the tendency is to pretty much ignore the part that doesn't change right. and emphasize the part that changes. So we say, puela, puelai, puelai, puelam, and you have to really beat that out of students. Uh, I unfortunately lived after the age when it was permitted literally to beat students. Although one of my, Me too. <laughs> one of my favorite English writers was a satirist whose most famous uh, book in the 17th century was his satires against the Jesuits. Uh, if only he had lived today and could go after the Jesuits today. But anyway, he, um, he uh, writes a letter to a friend that he says, uh, I spent the, spent the past three years beating Latin into boys. And this was no metaphor. <laughs> so... As our audience can tell, I've just lit a cigar. Now, let us try, uh, let's try uh, moneo monere, to warn or advise. Okay, let's see if I can do this right. Monebom, monebas, monebat, monebamos, monebates, monebant. Right. Okay, right. what about third conjugation? Duco ducere. Here, here we have to cheat because uh, you because it's always accented on the stem vowel. That I mean is the tendency, whereas that stem vowel is supposed to be short. But uh, so the so the Romans obligingly lengthen the stem in order to make the imperfect. So rather than it being ducabom, it becomes ducabom. All right. So this one's easier. Duque bomb, duque boss, duque bot, duque bombos, duque botes, duque bond. Exactly. Now, uh, now we get into the little tricky because the I stem verbs of the third conjugation, <clears throat> facio, uh, capio, and uh, fourth conjugation verbs have an I, and uh, for some reason, uh, I, I suppose I should know this, but I don't. Uh, I don't, don't, don't know if anybody does. But they uh, added, I think just for euphony, added an E to the verbal stem so that it doesn't become kapibam or audibam, but it becomes what instead? Kapiebam. Right. So let's hear that one. So it's kapiebam, kapiebas, kapiebat. Capiebamos, capiebates, capiebant. Good. And similarly, audiebam, audiebas, audiebat. Audiebamos, audiebates, audiebant. Now, right. what we were saying about the shortening of the vowel before, uh, before T and NT is true across the board in Latin verbs. So that's why it's not amabat, but amabat. The, right. uh, uh, one question that uh, maybe one of our listeners or maybe our friend Stephen can tell us, I have endless struggles with uh, people who are doing ecclesiastical Latin and their handbooks tell them there's no difference between long and short vowels in church Latin. And yet when I hear uh, educated Italians speak church Latin, they make the, the same distinction you'd make in Latin between, say, E and it. 
Huh. A and A. So I, uh, the answer, I don't have an answer to that. I, I asked uh, Father Bovey, uh, who used to be priest in Rockford, and he spent a lot of time in Italy, and he said that was his impression too, that in countries where they speak Romance languages, this, it, 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 it's, it's, it, they do make the, the, the routine distinction in vowels. So I, I just wonder if this ecclesiastical pronunciation isn't imposed by tone-deaf uh, English speakers. But That's very, yeah. very possible. <laughs> but I, I don't have the answer. And, uh, you oh, can't. That's interesting. Now, let's talk about the imperfect. In English, you know, we have one simple past tense, right? Uh, which is, uh, uh, I worked, you know, I sang. It's formed in different ways, but it, 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 can, mean, uh, it can mean either I did something once, like... Uh, I uh, I worked out a system for uh, doing for uh, building a house, or for many years I worked for IBM. You see, these are actually two different, quite two different verbal notions. One is I did something and finished it. The other is I I, I did it for a long time. I did it continually, or I did it repeatedly, or I did it as a habit. Latin has uh, two past tenses. And one of them either indicates a work done once or at least it is of it is brought to completion and that is the perfect tense. Uh, we're, we're not taking that up yet but you could say uh, I loved that is it would be closer to almost to I fell in love whereas uh, for many years you know I loved you know my dog that means I was in the habit of loving my dog. In other words, it, it went on and on and on and uh, with no conceivable ending until either I or the dog dies. That is imperfect. That is imperfect because perfect means completed. So imperfect is the imperfect tense. Uh, continuous, repeated, habitual action as opposed to, uh, as opposed to a completed or single action. Now, it, it is interesting because uh, the, it's a remnant in Latin. And, you, and also, the, the way the perfect is formed is also a remnant to some older and deeper things. It's much commoner in ancient Greek, that is, this distinction between perfect and imperfective. And by the way, modern Greek has developed this beyond what the ancients did. And I think that's under Slavic influence because the Slavs are more interested in whether an action is viewed as complete or viewed as incomplete. And so that distinction is at least as important as tense in Latin languages like Russian and Serbo-Croatian. And if you learn to speak these languages, uh, it can be very helpful, but you find yourself seeing things like, uh, like I had a, a, a Serb who worked for me and he said, uh, uh, I won't be seeing you again for some time because he couldn't. Every he's always using the, what we call the present progressive forms. I am doing. I am singing, to emphasize the fact that he would be using in Serbian an imperfective verb, and, and you just have to carry these verb forms around in your head. And uh, there's no mistake more common to be made by a non-Slavic speaker than to use the wrong set of uh, the wrong set of verb forms. Hmm. So, but it allows you, it allows you um, in 
uh, in a language that can make this decision, this, this distinction, as you can in Latin, as you can in um, modern Italian, as you can in French, it allows you to be more explicit, more clear about uh, what you're doing. And the loss of these distinctions in English, like for example the fact that we've lost the pluperfect and future perfect forms by and large in uh, regular subliterate English, means that you sometimes have to, you have to ask people what, what they meant. Because it's, it's not clear what the time frame is. And because when you get in the habit of being sloppy about the words that express time or, or aspect, uh, I think your brain begins to get soft on that subject. You really don't care. Well, this is the time on the, the program when uh, you get to ask questions, and also uh, those faithful few who listen to this podcast can also email in questions to ask on the next program. So, <clears throat> so these are pedagogical questions, or how to teach Latin, or any anything within the, anything within the Roman Latin universe is uh, on the table. So, what do you want to know today? <laughs> well. Um... I've started grading the most recent round of quizzes I gave. And um, what's really disturbing about these is their translations. We had, I had just given, they had, this week we started studying various ways to introduce questions and they got all of that right. But what they're not doing right is translating each word for what it is. You know, they'll put things in the passive or they'll connect Instead of translating an active verb, they'll turn it into an adjective to describe a noun. Yeah. So they'll sort of get the sense of the sentence correct, but they're not translating the words for what they are. And I've told them that this is wrong before and sort of taken them through it before. But, but what else can I do? Well, one thing uh, you can do is always uh, be uh, polite and friendly about it, but correct them in class whenever they do this. Now, I, I used to know graduate students who had ha been having Latin since they were eight years old. They had a lot more Latin than I did in those days. But uh, they had got very slovenly, and they translate over all the fine points. And so it sounded really nice and smooth, but that's not what you should be doing in class. Or uh, it's fine for a, uh, when you're translating a book because you're trying to put it into eloquent English. But if you translate over the pro what they're doing is guessing their way through and, right. and doing a you know and doing maybe a plausible job. And there's some room for that when you're like if you somebody hands you a Latin text and you look at it and you they say what does that mean? Well, you want to give it to them in a in in a in a in an intelligible way, but also you don't want to sit there and wonder what the use of the ablative is here. So uh, you you do you do your best at guessing, but uh, but for class uh, it's very important to to do what we used to call translation ease. In other words, a literal no matter a literal translation, no matter how awkward and clumsy. Maybe that's what I should stress to them. Yeah. I think because I mean at their age and their experience, which, you know, they've had seven or eight months of Latin, they don't know enough to be able to 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 yeah. you know, to be giving yeah. me a really smooth translation. Yeah. So yeah. maybe they're just afraid 
to give the awkward sounding translation because they're afraid it doesn't sound right. I, I don't know. Or it could be just just they're they're they're, they're lazy and slovenly, but well, it's it's probably a combination yeah. of all, all of these things. One of the things I, I like to explain to people, like to grown-ups who are learning any language, is that uh, in the beginning, what you need to do is to create a kind of to, uh, kind of translation robot as an intermediary between whatever the language is—Latin, Greek, French, German, whatever it is. And uh, and uh, English, and so uh, because when you keep on saying these artificial stilted uh, uh, sentences, then the result is that it has this this backwash effect. And that, that is that you remember that's how you say it in Italian or French. In other words, this awkward construction you're always using in translating into English. You then, when you want to say that in French or Latin or Italian, then that awkward construction immediately pops up like a box in a computer, and then you say, oh yeah, and then you can just jump into the parallel phrase in the language. Whereas, if you say, for example, um, if every time you see you, the sentence, mi piace sciare in Italian, uh, which means, to me it is pleasing to ski, now, what this means is I like skiing, but it may be in the first year you're studying Italian, you should always say, to me, it is pleasing, and that's mihi plaquet, by the way. In, in right, Latin. I was about to yeah. say, we're, do, we're doing that right now. Yeah. And so you want to you wanna maybe every, go back and forth, but you want to emphasize the, the clumsy construction because that then constantly drills into them, whether they're thinking about it or not. How the how the Latin is actually uh, being structured, right? I like that idea because though they don't like the way it sounds, um, it does drill into them what the actual construction yeah. is. Yeah, um, mm. which is good because we've been studying the dative as well, and they don't like that either. But <laughs> <laughs> this, this would help. Well, you know, we have this. Hot, I see in uh, in uh, uh, foreign language textbooks written in English. They don't understand the dative case e at all, and so and they'll have in uh, an Italian, which has a pretty uh, active uh, indirect object set of pronouns. The uh, the the problem is that they won't the the textbook writers in English won't recognize the difference consistently between a direct and indirect object because it's not clear in English. Like uh, uh, like the difference between. Um, uh, let's say, uh, um, hit me again, or bring me a coffee. I mean, those are two different constructions, and so you have to begin to say, no, it's to me, bring you know, bring a cup of coffee, right? And uh, and you and you have to emphasize that, but 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 it's interesting because we're so slovenly that we don't we don't get these indirect objects anymore. I don't I don't even think they're I don't know what they call them in English class, but they don't really teach it very well. If no. at all. Yeah. No. Because yeah, it would be very hard to teach it because if you did, then people would start saying, Bring to me the call you know, like you would yeah. you would think more about it. We uh one of the uh, my Greek professor uh, Douglas Young, who is a, a very great man uh, and uh, also a, a poet and uh, and a leader of the Scots National Party, 
but he would love ex- old-fashioned English expressions like "knock me the door, boy." Yes, and uh, which means, of course, and he said, "me" is there the dative of interest or the ethical dative. Now, it's not an indirect object, but it is in whose interest should the door be knocked upon? Well, that's me. So that's that's it, il- <laughs> it illustrates a, a Greek and Latin uh, use of the dative, which is die- dying out in English. But is not is still there are there are uh, of course then he would say <laughs> there's this horrible English phrase like uh, if you if you're asking somebody to visit you you say knock me up sometime right and, oh, uh, dear. <laughs> yes that could uh, that had uh, could, uh, subject to misinterpretation any well, other? At, least, <laughs> at least you didn't have a female teacher Mm-mm. no goodness. Um, I don't think so. I don't think I have any other big questions. You know, they're just all lazy and they don't want to learn, but you can't fix that problem for me. No. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the, that's the, unfortunately, uh, man's nature as it's made is to, is to, uh, 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 live in a in a in a pigsty and not to move as long as somebody feeds him, which is which explains why the welfare system does what it does. But it is up to the teacher, of course, to a to inspire the student to aim higher because before noble ideals, and b to push the cattle prod in his rear so that he understands if he doesn't aim higher, there are going to be negative consequences. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying. Well, it's it's endless. It's like it's like it's like keeping house, you know, you know, or mowing the lawn. It's not like something. It's a, it's a process that doesn't end except in the grave. Right. And no. uh, and it, we always we have to do it to ourselves. But one of the good things about Latin is it it does this to us. It is it it clarifies our mind so that we always have to be trying to figure out what is it we mean when we say X. That's what you know. And I. And I like coming at it from this angle, um, that as a teacher, instead of um, just somebody trying to review on my own, it's really helped me to learn more as well. So I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, it's hard to learn a language unless, for me, it's hard to learn anything unless I'm teaching it. This is why I've, I've done endless boring lectures on various subjects where I'm just an amateur, because, in, uh, because I'm organizing, I'm reading, taking notes, and organizing the material Maybe someday that the 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 sort of trivial elementary level of the lectures I've done on on like the Middle Ages will uh, they eventually filter into a broader conception. But but it's only by <clears throat> organizing your thoughts and and disciplining yourself by teaching others that I think this for most of us that that, that it actually works. I think you're right. Well, let's uh, look at uh, just very briefly at some. Uh, English words that have come from the passage from St. Paul that we read. And that was, you know, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, loquebar ut parvulus. And I thought as a child, cogitabam as a child. And when I was a man, I put away or I made empty evacuavi or evacuavi, those things which belong to a child. So, Let's look at uh, a few words. Well, for loquor, speak, loqui, locutus, we obviously get words like loquacious, eloquent, but notice also we get it formed from the first principal part and the last principal part because we also get from locutus 
having having spoken, we get locu- locution, elocution, etc. Right. What about at cogito? Is a cogito is a little bit to think is a little bit uh, stranger, but we get excogitate to think something out. Right. Evacuare uh, from Latin vacuus, empty. So hence a vacuum is a void. Hence a vacuum cleaner, which is right. which does not, by the way, clean out voids, which would be uh, uh, voids by definition have nothing in them. But uh, we get what, what evacuate, and right? Vacuous meaning a vacuous statement is a statement without any meaning. What about cognosco, cognoscere, cognoi, cognitus? Notice that's the, a, yeah. What do we get from big, that? Well, we've got recognize and recognition. Mm-hmm. Cognizant. Yeah. Incognito. And ah, then, ah, ah, ah. What, what, what's that fourth principle part? Cognitus. Right. So it's incognito. Oh, what did I say? Incognito, which is what, oh. everybody, which is what everybody says in American English, but... It it, it 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 is wrong, and I, I was we were watching an English movie the other night, a really dumb Agatha Christie movie with Dame Margaret Rutherford, and she yes. says we'll have to be incognito, and it was it was nice to see that somebody trained oh. trained at the old Vic <laughs> could pronounce incognito. Well, I just assumed we could say it any way we wanted to. <laughs> no. yeah, of course, yeah. we're Americans. This is America. <laughs> yeah. Um. To they. Uh, to remain, maneo, manere, mansi, mansuras. And mm. what do we get from that? We've got permanent, mm-hmm. and of course, to remain. Mm-hmm. And then mansion, yeah. which is, that's a nice one. Yeah, mansion is a, is a dwelling place. Yes. Hence, in my father's house, there are many mansions. It's a little confusing in the authorized version of the Bible, because it, we think, wait a minute, my, uh, what, in the kingdom of heaven, there are lots of fancy uh, houses right. built by nouveau riche people? And uh, no, I mean, there are, there are many dwelling places in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> right. <laughs> then we get uh, faith and charity, uh, fides and caritas. From fides, well, we get, we get fideistic, meaning pertaining to a religious faith. We right. also get the English word faith which uh, comes from an old French word, fade, which becomes modern French foi. But it goes into Middle English as fade, and then inevitably we turn Ds into THs in English. So like tote becomes death and things like that. So, so faith comes straight, it's a straight derivation through, uh, through uh, old French uh, into, uh, from, from old French, from Latin fides. Does fidelity come as well? Yes, absolutely, yes. fidelity, because that comes directly from the Latin adjective fidelis, right. which means right. faithful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's uh, let's close with a little passage from the historian, the uh, Roman imperial historian Eutropius, who writes a kind of sh- abbreviated version for children and students of Roman history. This is his chapter on the life of the second king of Rome, Numa Pompilius. And I'll try to remember to post the whole outline on, uh, on the website, but especially in giving it this paragraph. So why don't you read it in Latin? Read it, read it in, in classical Latin, and then I'll give a little bit of it in churchy Latin afterwards. Ooh, all right. 
postea numa pompilius rex creatus est, qui bellum quidem nullum gesit, sed non minus civitati quam Romulus profuit, nam et leges Romanis moresque constitutit, qui consuetudine prole, proliorum iam latrones ac semi barbari putabantur. Et, bar, semi barbari, right? Oh, sorry, semi barbari putabantur. Et anum descripsit in decem menses prius sine aliqua supatatione confusum et infinita Romae sacra at templa constituit. Morbo decesit quadragesimo et tertio imperii anno. Thank you. So, in a little bit of church Latin, and it's which is not so difficult. Postea numa pompilius rex creatus est, qui bellum quidem nullum gesit, sed non minus civitati quam Romulus profuit, nam et leges Romanis moresque constituit, qui consuetudine preliorum iam latronis ac semi-barbari putabantur, etc. Now, let's look at what this means. Uh, you want to start and I'll take it up? Sure. After Numa Pompilius was created king... Or rather, afterwards, yes. Right, after, oh, sorry, afterwards, yeah. Numa Pompilius was made king, who waged no war, um, but was was not less... Sorry, was not less... Helpful... Right, he beneficial. was not beneficial to the to the city state or to right. the people than than Romulus. Right. So um, and notice it's qui bellum quidem nullum, in, who indeed waged no war, but successively. In fact, he didn't wage any war. He was he was the 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 uh, the second king, and instead of waging war, he was uh, religious. Uh, for uh, he set up, constituit, he set up both laws and customs for the Romans. The Romans who were thought, uh, were regarded as uh, bandits and uh, semi-barbarians by the frequency or the customary habit they had of, of, of battles. And he um, marked off the year, anum descripsit, into ten months. Uh, the year which previously, Prius, was confused without any subdividing, without any discretion, without any distinction, uh, supputazione. And he also established a very large number, infinita, and, and literally an endless number of rites and temples for Rome. He died of a disease in his 43rd year of his, of his reign. Why, uh, why is it so important, do you think, to have uh, marked off the year? That seems to... Now, obviously, there have been many calendars um, uh, in, uh, in the ancient world long before Numa Pompilius, and in fact, the Romans would have borrowed their calendars from the Etruscans, who would have got it probably mostly from the Greeks. Uh, and these would be lunar calendars, largely. Uh, it took, the Roman calendar took a long time to straighten out. The last straightening of the Roman calendar was was done by whom? Remember? 
Um, Why is it called the Julian calendar? Because uh, is it Julius Caesar? Yes, Julius Caesar. He didn't do it himself, obviously. He uh, he was a wise guy. I mean, he was a very educated man. But he he, he was he hired some Greek experts who who understood uh, the uh, who understood astronomy and uh, and and could do it. But the Romans are. Uh, as Polybius says of the Romans, why were they so successful? And, and this is a passage which is often misunderstood. I, I was, in fact, I, the greatest Roman historian of the past couple of hundred years, Theodore Mommsen, it seems to me, makes, makes light of it wrongly. He says it's that, uh, not that the Romans were religious and because they could then snooker the common people into obeying the law, that's a good reason for religion all across the world. You know, world is to get people to quit robbing, raping, murdering, etc. But he says it's they kept their oaths, and people who keep oaths are trusted, and they can you can build an empire because people know if you shake hands with them, they will uh, they'll they'll keep their bargain. And the Romans were very religious, and for them, religion. We don't have a, see, I maintain Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is an acknowledgement of truth, faith in what is real. For the Romans, though, religion is a system by which you find out what the gods want you to do and when and how they want you to do it, and then you do it. So if you don't have a calendar, it's pretty hard to figure out what, right, <laughs> what, what date you, you, you're supposed to do it. And this is why, by the way, the, uh, the, uh, Romans of the early empire, Tacitus says that the Jews don't have a religion, they only have a superstition. They, 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 and he doesn't think Christians are any better, really, because he doesn't really distinguish between the two groups. And he says, because the Jews worship a book, and the book is closed, and all they do is read this book over and over and over, and they think it's got all the answers, whereas if you had a religion, you'd be constantly trying to find out what the gods want, and to keep them happy so that they don't crush you. And uh, whereas this was in the, uh, you know, in the, in the Torah, this is all fixed, you know, what, what, how the length of the fringe on the priest's garment and what you can offer and on what day. Whereas, whereas for the Romans, it's something they're always trying to ascertain how, how, what, the, what mood the gods are in today, what they want from you. And even fairly cynical, non-believing Romans felt that this was a necessary part of, uh, of a Roman tradition and even very sophisticated, uh, well-educated Romans at the, near the end of the empire, when Rome gets sacked by the Goths in 410, they said, see, it's because those Christians don't allow us to carry on these rites, and that's why the gods have abandoned us, and that's why we're going down. Now, obviously, that's a, a ridiculous position, but what's important to see, one of the admirable qualities about the Romans is precisely their insistence upon being unscrupulous adherence to what they perceive to be uh, the divine will. And that's why it's, very, it's a great contribution of Romulus to have, de uh, have set up a calendar by which they could determine the right day on which to hold their sacra, which, which is also referred to. Right. So, any, uh, any, any questions? No, that was a nice tidbit. Yeah, well... Roman, I'm I'm reading uh, I'm rereading page by page uh, Momsen's history of Rome. I've got down to I've got down to the period after Sulla. This has taken me months to get here because it's about uh, fifteen hundred pages by now. 
But um, Roman history is infinitely rewarding. It's, uh, you, it's a record of crime, but it's also a record of heroism and nobility, and it's, uh, it's a worthwhile study. I agree. But on that note, on that note, I will say goodbye to our, our listeners. And I hope they will write in either directly to, to, to the website or they can send us questions also, uh, which can be discussed in the growing autodidact section. There'll be, a, there'll be a special page up before too long where we discuss ancient and, uh, and modern, by which I mean uh, lit- uh, literary works of the past 500 years, and uh, how to, and how to teach them and how to organize a curriculum and we have many collaborators now not the least of which is Eleanor Fleming Lacey whom we've been speaking with thank you very much everybody goodbye goodbye thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation all rights are reserved these podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly not on a volunteer basis if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.